Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Marco Quarta, CEO and co-founder of Rubeto Life Sciences, a company devoted to developing medicines that preserve biological youth by targeting the pathological cells that drive aging. Marco has a PhD in neuroscience from the University of Padua in Italy, and he did his postdoc at Stanford in the research group of Tom Rando, who appeared on this show exactly one year ago. We'll find out all about what Marco has been doing since then during our interview. Marco, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I really love this show, this podcast. I think it's so important to support the community and uh, really foster the growth of the mission that we all share. So, such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for your kind words. Uh, you and I met, I think, in 2019 at a longevity therapeutics meeting, and I've been I've been wanting to interview you for some time, and I'm glad we're finally getting around to it. Let's begin this conversation by defining our adversary. What is a pathologic cell and how do these cells drive aging? Something that I learned over the years, it's not easy to translate a model into actually clinical practice. And uh, the general definition of what we know of you know, a pathological cell type hardly translate directly into actual pathologic cells that you find in patients. So we, for example, are focusing on different type of, let's say, pathologic cells. One are, let's say, this broad definition of senescent cells. But I personally, for example, kind of uh, don't really endorse the full, the, this general view of senescent cells because there, really, there is really not such a thing as a senescent cells. It's easier to find them in vitro. It's really hard to classify or, or identify them in, in vivo, in, especially in, in, in patients, in, in clinical samples. So these are aberrant cells, are dysfunctional cells, maladaptive cells that are contributing to shift the microenvironment and really lead to progression of chronic degenerative conditions, driving chronic inflammation, fibrosis, stem cell depletion, cancer. Cancer cells are pathologic cells of age-related diseases, but even there is no a cancer cell, so they're very heterogeneous, very different, and so are really any other pathologic cells. It's um, it's, uh, very mindful of having a very focused effort to, so you can identify and classifying cells that are associated with a specific group of indications, because there are no, you know, universal pathologic cells across all tissues or indications. So it really depends on your question and find targets associated with those that you can really go after in a drug discovery pipeline to generate therapeutics based on those. This is a topic that's changed a lot over the last 10 years. I think that in 2010, 2011, back when I was still in Judy Campisi's lab, we were still trying to characterize what the senescent phenotype is. And now it's become clear that there isn't just one kind of senescence, just as there's not one kind of cancer. Another Marco, one of your countrymen, Marco De Maria, was on the show just before Tom Rando's episode a year ago, and he pointed out that the definition of senescence is a bit slippery, that it's evolving, 
that there are many kinds of different kinds of senescent cells. And it sounds like you agree with that assessment. I absolutely agree. Actually, definitely Marco de Maria and I share that. And um, maybe I take the chance to say, you know, we are, with Marco de Maria, we are co-chairing and co-organizing the first Sinotherapeutic Summit, which will happen in November at the Bakke Institute. And uh, we will discuss this and many others. So there will be all the main stakeholders from academy, industry, far investment world to really kind of create a platform, a forum to advance the field. And one of the main points is, you know, what are senescent cells? Is there such a thing? I personally don't think so. You know, think that, as you said, you're absolutely right. Ten years ago, there is the idea, maybe a little bit naive, of saying, what's the best way to kill senescent cells like we see in animals, in animal models? And now, in a way, to me, feels like in the 70s, when people think, were thinking, how can we kill cancer cells? <laughs> right? so, can we make a, a pan-oncolytic? No. Sure, sure. The cure for cancer, Marco. The cure for cancer. <laughs> exactly. So can we make the cure for all age-related disease by killing all senescent cells? Probably not. Can we treat age-related disease? Can we, which I strongly believe has a profound impact as master regulators in driving the progression of chronic conditions? Not really this end stage, right? They're not really maybe making fibrosis in a tissue. They're not a myofibroblast that release collagen, but they are the cells that are activating and inducing fibroblast to transition into myofibroblast and you know take that phase. So really important therapeutic targets, but they're not all the same. So it's important to think about that. To your point, 10 years ago, the first generation of senolytics like BCL2 class inhibitors, like Navitoclax, has been identified in in vitro models and in cancer cell lines, repurposing this from the cancer space. Now we know that while this is a valid target, but works in certain cases and not in many others. And so you need to know which target is relevant to pursue a certain drug development pipeline. Fantastic. And we're going to talk about how you select targets in a moment. I realized something about this conversation that happens sometimes between people who are very deeply grounded in a field where we're talking about an advanced topic in the field without actually giving the foundational basis for understanding that advanced topic. So granted that senescence is complicated, granted that there are non-dividing pathologic cells, i.e. not cancer cells, that drive disease that are not like canonically senescent. I want to kind of go down to the ground level of this story and whether the cells are senescent or not, can you describe what we mean when we say that there are cells in the body that are abnormal or pathologic that are driving age-related disease? We don't have to use the word senescent, but just paint me a picture about how that works exactly. That's an absolutely valid point that we have to kind of go back to the foundation. And I can use the word senescence in this case, but fantastic. Just because it's a model, it's a simplification and uh, it includes some of those cell types. I actually almost like more the idea of zombie cells like people use, right? <laughs> so, what happens, especially with age, but we are talking about biological aging here. It's now that we don't have to confuse this with chronological age. Like biological aging is you know, a process where things change. You know, there are different pathways regulated, a different uh, a shift in the, in the tissue, in the environment that leads to 
you know, a biology that is conducive of a change in cell function. That persistent damage, for example, that tends to happen with chronological age too, stress, stress like from the environment, from the light, like in the skin, the UV, or the in, from a smoker in the lung, or SARS-CoV-2 in COVID-19, and you know, many factors, pollutants, etc. Over time, constant damage triggers cells to protect itself and the environment by stopping what they're doing, change their function, and somewhat call for help. And so they start to, they don't divide anymore. Also to prevent the cells can become cancer. So it's sort of the other side of the coin. It's called also tumor suppressor mechanism. There's something wrong in the cells. You want to stop it and then start to secrete factors that are useful. So they call immune cells that are doing immune surveillance to come over, responding to this call, to clear them and repair and help you know, wound healing, regeneration, and uh, tissue homeostasis, et cetera. But this is a double-edged sword, right? Uh, these, uh, those cells, these aberrant cells, are also pleiotropic, which means they can play both a positive and negative function. So when this happens, instead of being clear, they can escape immune cells, they hide. And they keep releasing those factors. And now they're like causing an inflammation that the body cannot heal that eventually starts to break things down. It's the, 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 really the, it's the triggering point where things start to you know, degenerate and you start to see tissue fibrosis or stem cell depletion and the tissue cannot repair itself. And it's behind, has been shown, at least these cells like that, to be behind many age-related diseases, cardiovascular diabetes, neurodegenerative, fibrosis, and many others. So just to recap, the idea is that environmental factors and the slow progress of biological change over the years causes cells to change their transcriptional and gene expression programs in a certain set of somewhat characteristic ways that drive degenerative, inflammatory, fibrotic changes in tissues throughout the body and that these deleterious effects drive diseases of aging and what we think of as aging itself. And so if we can get rid of the senescent cells or the pathologic cells, whatever you want to call them, we can slow biological aging and prevent disease. That is the general idea. And to my previous point, it's not um, necessarily linked to a chronological aging. So the average person started to see this inflection point where there, you have enough accumulation of cells or in the field is called even inflammaging, right? So reaching that level of inflammation where things start to break down in one tissue first and others follow. And then you have comorbidities and all those age-related diseases like increase the risk factor every year after that point. Average person is around, let's see, it's between 60s and 70s. You see this inflection point coming up, but that can happen sooner. Like pediatric cancer survivors that undergo chemotherapy, radiotherapy in young age, they see this inflection point coming up in their 30s. So they develop neurodegenerative disease, cardiovascular disease when they are 30 years younger. We now see this in long COVID for COVID-19 survivors that had severe cases. They develop 10, 20 years sooner interstitial lung diseases like lung fibrosis and others and other conditions sooner or more aggravated. So it's a plastic phenomenon, which 
also suggest that can be changed because it's not linked to your chronological age, but there are factors that really drive that, and those cells are part of it. You said earlier that there is a lot of diversity among the cells that fall into this general category of pathologic, and presumably this means that they have different functions, but also that they have different markers and different biological characteristics that could be targeted. So how do you define the specific kind of cells that you're going after, and how do you identify them in a way that is sort of amenable to targeting them with some kind of therapeutic? So of course, it's a complex endeavor. Our strategy, you know, we, we build multiple tools to do that. Uh, we leverage single cell multiomics and uh, to triangulate this, right? Uh, the level of single cell resolution is really important because what, what did you mention earlier? Some of the cell types are actually very rare. They're intersparse in the tissue. It's not like a, a mass, like you know, it's not a tumor mass or a large uh, tissue, but yet they're very pathologic. You can isolate those cells, even a small number, we did those studies, and you transplant them from even a person into a mouse or mouse to mouse. And a very small, and others, there's a nice nature medicine paper published by Kirkland and others that show that a very small number of that can recapitulate an accelerated form of aging in younger mice. And so a frailty and overall this aging process and diseases. But they're small, they're rare. So you need that level of resolution. So that's why we leverage single cell omics technology, special transcriptomics, uh, single cell sequencing, then transcriptomics, etc. Now that comes with the the cost of complexity. Now you can generate lots of data, and of course you need good quality data, but then you need also to kind of uh understand and organize that and classify it and you know make sense out of that triangulate through these multiple layers and we, we try really to look across dimensions like across ages across tissues across patient populations across uh, per clinical models so that's lots of complexity so we facilitate this and we build mathematical models now train neural networks and machine learning approach that can help in an unsupervised and in a semi-supervised fashion to come down to potential hypotheses and solutions of what are those cells, how to classify them, what's special about them, what are signatures associated with them. And so we can use that down in our pipeline where we experimentally validate this on clinical samples. Uh, So taking either tissues, biopsies, or isolating primary cells from patients where we can now kind of validate our hypothesis started by informatically using, for example, you know, stomachs and high-volume content fish, spatial transcriptomics or multiomics, etc. So then you can narrow down your hypothesis, funneling down, and identifying cells that where you can build models based on that, that you can use, and you have a short list of targets, so you can use to screen against those and come up with hits. For us, it's really the starting point because those hits for us becomes scaffolds that fall into our chemistry platform. So we have proprietary strategies to Enabled partially by chemoinformatic, again, Alembic is the name of our platform, as a bioinformatic and chemoinformatic aspect. So with these building blocks that we find, 
we design small molecules that are engineered to target those cells that we identified on those models that we developed based on that, and that are then tested in clinical samples and in clinical models for efficacy to inform a clinical trial de design. I want to back up just a little bit and talk about the rareness of the cells that you are looking at. And I have one question that's sort of about biology, and then one question that's about your discovery process. So the biology question is, for our listeners who may not have encountered this concept before, how is it that a rare cell type can have such a large effect on a tissue or a disease state, if by definition there aren't that many of them around? And that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, that's why also they were so elusive for a long time. Although, you know, this idea of senescent cells has been really discovered by Hayflick in the 60s, but in vitro, then the evidence that that can be somewhat playing a role in vivo, it took decades you know, to come up. But the key is, and you know, those cells don't even divide, right? So they're like sitting there in a cell arrest state. So why are so bad? Why they're so toxic? Again, going back to the analogy of zombies, they don't die, they stay there, but they're also very toxic to the environment. Why? Because they are metabolically very active and they have a, what is called a secretome. They release around them a very complex cocktail of factors, you now cytokines, metalloproteases, many others, that have this impact on triggering a inflammatory response. They, you know, immune cells respond to that. They are called on site. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a good thing. So in, when things go well, they can go find them, get rid of them on one end. On the other end, those factors can help stem cells to activate and divide and repair. So they have a function. They are used during development, right, to make the body grow to do tissue remodeling during puberty for, you know, and bone remodeling, et cetera. They're important for wound dealing when you have an injury, like in the skin. They're required at the beginning to help accelerating growth. But then you need to get rid of them because then those factors that are so potent and active, and they start actually to change and respond to the environment. To make, put it simple, they can drive our immune cells crazy. Those are non-immune, right? So they're non-immune pro-inflammatory cells that they can pretty much escape immune immune system, which with age also becomes, you know, aged. The immune senescence is part of that. But many of those cells can really escape immune cells. Immune cells are incapable of getting rid of them, but they respond to those factors. They actually, the, the, the other important point is those factors can induce a secondary senescence. So the healthy neighboring cells that didn't receive any injury or insult or stress, but now they're responding to those factors becoming senescent-like as well, start to release factors as well. So that's how you see how things can somewhat propagate and make things building up to a point that the tissue cannot function properly and starts to make different decisions, such as you know making collagen and becoming scarred and becoming fibrotic or breaking down, et cetera, et cetera. It's a slow process and is very sneaky in a way, uh, but that builds up over time 
And that's what comes with age and accelerate the aging process. So it becomes a, a bad look. Thank you. That really clarifies an element of the biology that I felt like might not be completely clear. And it's, it's really important to understanding what the value of this approach is. So, okay, on to the discovery process. And I think your answer to this question may have been in what you said earlier, but I, I just want to clarify and kind of draw out some of the detail. So you talked about sort of the chemi-informatic side of what you're doing, the fact that you're designing small molecules to interact with these cells that you're targeting. But what about those cells is being targeted? Is it a cell surface marker, like something that's presented on the outside of the cell? Is it an enzyme within the cell? Does it depend on the situation? There are multiple modalities. Part of this work is still undisclosed and is ongoing, but in our pipeline, we have different programs focusing on different group of indications. Right? Each indication, for example, we have a respiratory program for interstitial lung diseases where IPF, so idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or this is a progressive lung fibrosis, is an entry point. Because again, it's not an antifibrotic treatment. It's a treatment that targets this aging process. In other words, this, the progression of this chronic degenerative condition. So get rid of those cells, kind of deprive the system of what is informing and telling the tissue to keep degenerating. So hopefully, you know, helps the, the remaining healthy stem cells to repair and immune cells to repair. So there are, depending multiple modalities and mechanisms that we are, we're developing in different programs. And there are different targets associated with that. One of the, some of the work that we, we disclosed in the past, I mean, uh, we started uh, developing certain type of prodrugs, for example, and uh, we did an initial work that was a tool compound, was a proof of concept based on a known marker of cellular senescence, which is beta-galactosidase. But that was like an academic exercise. We soon uh, moved beyond that. And you now with the platform, we identified other enzymes, for example, that we can use to generate the uh, derivatives based on their metabolites. So using those metabolites as promoietes to inactivate a parent drug that once is activated inside your target cells, leveraging these enzymes as a mechanism of action can release and activate a warhead that can go on your pathways of interest to induce cell deaths, for example. But this is one example. We have other programs that where we're using a different strategies and taking advantage of different cellular functions as a way to target the cells and then release or modify our compound into an active form. Why do we do that? I think as well, I mentioned this, because small molecules have lots of advantages from a pharmacological perspective and as a very established therapeutic development pathway, but they're also promiscuous. So uh, small molecules tends to have off-target effects and toxicities in general. We aim to treat elderly or people biologically aged, even if they're biologically or you know, chronologically younger, but they have comorbidities, they have frailty, they, have, they need a level of selectivity and safety for treating chronic conditions that is very important. And so we really are thinking and designing those compounds to be superior from a safety standpoint, from a efficacy standpoint. If I can just recapitulate the whole story that you've told me, you're looking at preclinical models, clinical samples, you're identifying rare cells that can be inferred to drive 
pathologic change. And then you're characterizing them by doing single cell techniques to identify what is characteristic or unique about them. And in particular, you're looking for things that are metabolically special about these cells that allow you to design small molecules that very selectively target these cells. And one of the reasons you want to do that is ultimately you hope to develop medicines that are administered over the long term for chronic illness in people who are already not at the top of their game biologically. So it's particularly important that the drugs be innocuous, have minimal adverse effects, if any, and can be used safely in older people over long periods of time. That's a really clear and elegant way to summarize my point. I want to add something. The, the important point of doing those drugs, of, you know, medicines like that, initially, as we, we want to test them into, if you will, you can consider extreme case of aging. So after the onset of diseases where things already are going south and people are suffering from this progression of conditions in different tissues, like the lung, the liver, in the skin, et cetera. Once you do that, it's a starting point. It's an entry point across multiple other indications. Like I said, I, pulmonary fibrosis is one, but we identified the same mechanism in the same cells that can also drive other interstitial lung diseases like COPD and others, right? And same for other tissue and organs. But that you can go beyond that. What's the aspirational goal of companies like us is to really develop in therapeutics to change the trajectory of the aging process. So having molecules, so medicines that are very safe and selective, let's say they can be activated by the cell when you have those cells, enable the opportunity to make drugs that can be used also preventively. Right? So if you take a drugs that you don't need, it's always joke, but we were putting lots of effort to do drugs that don't work unless you need them, when and where you need them. <laughs> As someone who's always looking for a communications hook about longevity biotech, Marco, I can basically guarantee you that I'm going to steal that from you at some point. That's fantastic. I feel free to. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So you're looking for drugs. Yeah. That don't do anything because the disease that they would be doing something about hasn't yet arisen. They're preventing it from arising in the first place. Okay. This transitions to a topic that I really want to talk about. And it's something that we think about at BioAge all the time. And I'm going to say a bunch of words now, but like ultimately what I want you to be thinking about in your crafting your answer is path to market. So the stated mission of Rubetto is to keep people biologically young. It says so many times on your website, which is great. I mean, you and I are both in longevity biotech. We're both at some level true believers in health span and lifespan extension and some kind of rejuvenation. And honestly, we have to be true believers because honestly, there are easier ways to turn a buck in pharma. But not being young is not a clinical indication that's recognized by the FDA. And in order to get our medicines into the clinic where they can be used for these kind of long-term aspirational preventive medicine goals, we have to get them approved for narrower indications that are specific diseases. So you mentioned one disease, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, IPF, which is particularly of interest to me because my father had that disease and died from it. I guess I'd just like you to tell us about, to the extent that you're able, the particular indications that you're going to be pursuing and sort of how you see your clinical development path and path to market, that part of the story. Before we get to the point that we're giving these things out in cereal boxes and everyone's taking them to prevent diseases of aging. 
And I think this is common in, a, in this field. Right? The, the main difference from a traditional biotech is that the drugs that we're all making, one that you guys are developing at BioAge and we're doing at Rubedo and, and, and many others, is that they have the potential to really go beyond that. And so a specific indication improving efficacy and moving this to the market as a specific rationale. And we have to be pragmatic, right? We have to leverage and build a program on you know, the, the shoulders of the giants of the past. So we cannot reinvent the wheel. However, while a typical, let's say, drug development or biotech a therapeutic development ends by developing a, med- a medic medicine for that specific uh, indication, that's where we start all of us, because that shows that then if you're truly targeting a, one aspect, at least of the biologic aging process, then you can really go beyond that and target other indication and potentially more aging syndromes as a whole. But the field is not ready for that yet. So I think like we are thinking at Rubedo, and I think it's very aligned with where you're thinking at BioAgent and many others is we need to find indications that are clear path to the clinic with their established indication with an established endpoints where you can stratify the patients, you have clarity for inclusion criteria, and so you de-risk clinical development. You maximize the chance to first showing safety, but then efficacy. You need to prove, ask the right question, and design your trial in the right way so the uh, you get the answers. Because you know often a trial, even if it's working, misses the point from a statistical standpoint, maybe because it hasn't been designed properly or missed some points. So we're really very pragmatically thinking about indications. We're an established path where we can move this as quickly as possible to the clinic and to the market, because that will enable also the company to you know sustain the expansion into other indications and eventually into more you know, really challenging syndromes of age that will require higher risk, higher reward, but also validating what we do. Because uh, if you go after something very hard it's if, and you know then you fail, it's hard to know if your strategy didn't work or if the company couldn't figure it out. But if you already have medicines that you prove to be effective and work and safe, then you can take the chance to try multiple paths to expand scope and really go after aspirational indications of aging. From the BioAge perspective, we really couldn't agree with you more. And obviously, we're, we're wishing you the best as you guys walk before you run, as we walk before we run. But I think the we're very aligned on the idea that we do want to run someday. We do want to reach this big aspirational goal of treating diseases of aging preventively, which to us is basically synonymous with treating the aging process itself and with the goal of increasing health span. And, you know, let's be honest, probably lifespan. I wanted to mention some good news that you had recently. Rubedo was awarded a $1.45 million grant by the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine to characterize cells in the lungs of patients that are affected by IPF, this pulmonary disease we were talking about earlier. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. What do you plan on doing with this funding? And, and maybe toward the end of your answer, how is that going to feed into your pipeline? So that definitely really exciting news and not just for the fundings, but uh, you know, being involved with the CERM for many years by teaching and training scientists before when I was at Stanford and also later on at Rubedo, 
and I'm part of the advisory board of the CERN program that involves the Cal Poly. So that's really close to my heart. And I'm really happy because uh, this is a you know highly rigorous grant where the reviewer stands to be you know KOLs, K opinion leaders that are not eligible for that specific uh, application. So there is no competing interest, but um, it's a very rigorous uh, evaluation of the science. So I think it's a fantastic somewhat recognition from peers, which I'm really pleased. And uh, this grant supports this the preclinical work for the uh, nomination of the lead candidates, the development candidate. And so we we are at this point far ahead of the work that we are uh, moving forward in partnership with the Cedar Sinai Medical Center in LA, which is very important because uh, we really rely on clinical samples in our studies, much less so on typical preclinical models like the typical mouse models of induced lung fibrosis, like bleomycin-induced models. Those are really not recapitulating the human disease that much. So we really wanted to focus on primary clinical samples. And so we really have access to the lung of IPF patients that receive transplantations, for example. So we can really test this efficacy ex vivo in humanized models in vivo, in animal models. And so this is a part of the work that it involves to really select and nominate our lead candidate. And that is, you know, leading to the following steps in the CERM grant awarding, where you now there is the IND development and then clinical development as well. The, our respiratory program is our secondary program. Our actually lead first program is in dermatology, which is something that we expect to move into the clinic uh, very soon. Oh, that's exciting! And it's for age-related dermatitis. Yeah, we are we are testing back-to-back multiple indications, including, for example, chronic um, uh, age-related atopic dermatitis and and others. Why? Well, these are indications that these are conditions that because are progressive and are chronic, standard of care is not effective anymore. I think that it's wonderful that you have multiple programs running, and I think that that's something that at BioAge we really value as a strategy as well. I know that you all are therapeutic area agnostic in your discovery process. We're mechanistically and area agnostic in our discovery process. And I think that, among other things, you know, it gives you a lot more shots on goal and it creates a situation where you're a platform company rather than a single asset company. And it means that, you know, you can take a risk. Maybe the risk doesn't pay off. You still have something else going on in parallel that could very easily pay off. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're looking at multiple directions and multiple indications and two different organ systems, which is wonderful. Thank you for the comment. And and we have also other other programs that I, I haven't mentioned that are part of a strategic uh, partnership that we're discussing. Even better. So as we get to the end of our time, uh, let's see a couple of questions. So do you have any interesting international travel planned in the near future, like tomorrow? <laughs> Yes, indeed. Actually, in uh, in a few hours. Why, Marco, would you tell us about that? <laughs> Thank you for talking to us a few hours before you get on a plane to like a really distant destination. Tell us where you're going. <laughs> good call. Good call. That's true. Uh, in a few hours, actually, I'm taking off and I'm flying to Riyadh in the Saudi Arabia that I've been invited uh, the speaker in, in one of the panels for this event organized by the Evolution Foundation and the National Academy of Science on the, you know, the global roadmap of healthy longevity. 
And uh, it's a very important event. Uh, they will have you know, major stakeholders from high-level government officials and scientists and innovators, business leaders. And really the idea is promoting a healthy longevity and how can we accelerate this, how we can promote this. It will be this Sunday, the 19th, and it's very exciting. So I'm very happy to go and contribute and give a little bit of my yeah, support to this initiative. Yeah, I'm excited for you too. Uh, Kristen Fortney, our CEO, actually just, she took off last night en route to Riyadh. So she'll be seeing you there. And I'm really looking forward to hearing how it goes. Just Hevolution is a really interesting initiative for listeners who don't know about it. It is the Saudi government has pledged notionally or nominally a billion dollars a year for research on longevity. I know that they haven't built that out yet and that they're still kind of constructing a lot of the funding structures and institutional structures that will support that. But it it certainly is, you know, a new, very major player in the field of longevity science and the field of longevity biotech. And it it doesn't look like this is a competitive posture. It looks like they're really trying to lean in and help a lot of different kinds of initiatives succeed around the world and really be a partner. And I think that this is, you know, a longer and more complicated conversation for sure. There are a lot of interesting issues that are raised. I'm hoping to have a representative of Evolution on the show at some point. We're still in negotiations about that, but I, I'm excited to hear from you after you get back, sort of how the event goes. And yeah, I just, I, I wish you the absolute best. So final question for me, we'll almost definitely have you back on the show in a few years. What do you think we'll talk about? Well, I hope I can come back to present the results of our uh, clinical trials. Uh, since we are really getting up for the first in human studies, and uh, I would say in a few years, I would anticipate that we might have more than one program in clinical development at this point. So I, that's where I really, we will transition from a preclinical to really uh, testing this in, in patients. And uh, I hope that will contribute to advance, the, you know, not just our internal programs, but I see our work as a contributor for this space where we really need multiple winners. It's a growing new emerging space. I see everybody really as partners in this mission. You know, I struggle to see anyone as a competitor because there is really such a big space, such a new emerging science. So I'm really excited to, and I hope next time I can really talk about our next chapter in moving this into patients and see how that goes. I'm looking forward to that. And just to amplify something that you said, we also think of the field as just much more collegial than competitive. And it's really nice to hear a leader in the field say that spontaneously on the show. Sometimes when I say it, I think people feel like it sounds like media guy BS, but there's a very common belief in longevity biotech that like a win for one is a win for all, because the moment that the geroscience hypothesis is validated in any way, even more interest is going to come into the field, even more talent, even more capital, and probably even more kind of attention from regulators kind of helping us clear the way for more and more of these kinds of therapies to enter the market. So I'm glad to hear you say that. At BioAge, we feel exactly the same way. And I just want to close by saying at BioAge, we are also wishing you the absolute best with your clinical development program. Have a great time in Saudi Arabia. I will watch my email for an invitation to your Sino Therapeutics Conference in November. And of course, we will be spamming our listeners with reminders about that. 
And uh, in the meantime, just, you know, take care. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Marco Quarta of Rubedo Life Sciences. Thank you so much, Chris. David. It's such a pleasure. I'm a big fan of you and BioAge. And absolutely, you are invited in the Synotherapeutic Summit. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, you're front of the line. So I'll definitely touch base when I come back from Saudi. And thank you again for having me here. It was a was lot of fun and great opportunity to share something to the community. Thank you for the kind words and many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at BioAge Podcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.